Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories, the years, and successes. Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Vishal Sunak. Vishal is the founder and CEO of Link Squares, the company behind the fastest growing AI-powered contracting platform for legal teams. Link Squares is trusted by more than 800 legal teams at mid to large companies, including Commvault, Fitbit, and Wayfair, to move their businesses forward faster. Vishal was named to Boston Business Journal's 2022 40 Under 40 list, honoring the Boston area's young professionals who are achieving the most in their careers and giving back to the community. Link Square's rapid growth ranks number 10 in Massachusetts and number 379 overall on the 2022 Inc. 5000 list of America's fastest growing companies, landing a, landing a top spot for the second year in a row. The company also ranked number 90 on the 2021 Deloitte Technology Fast 500 Awards, recognizing North America's most innovative, fastest growing technology companies. Vishal has a BS in engineering from Northeastern University and an MS from Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Outside of Link Squares, Vishal mentors local Boston-based startup founders, plays covers and the blues on his guitar and spends time adventuring with his wife and two young daughters. Welcome, Vishal. So good to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sure. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Okay, let's go. So what's the best concert that you've ever attended? So many. Um, Jay-Z, Kanye on the Watch the Throne tour in Boston with my sister. Definitely a highlight. Uh, Coldplay uh, at Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. Outdoor, big venue. Definitely a good one. Uh, seeing John Mayer multiple times. Seeing Maroon 5 before they were famous at a little rock club uh, near Boston University. God, it must have been God, 15 years ago. Right before their songs about Jane came out. That was cool. Yeah. Uh, lots of, lots of concerts. Lots, lots of, concerts. of concerts. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big music guy. Okay, would you rather the Patriots, I know you're a basketball, you're a hooper, but I'm just curious, would you rather the Patriots win the Super Bowl or the Celtics win the championship? Oh, you know, let's pass the love on to the Celtics. I, I think Patriots had a good run. I, I am a huge Patriots fan. Uh, love to see the Celtics hang another banner. Yeah. Okay, is there a quote that you live by or that you reference? Yeah, it takes a thousand attaboys to get rid of one off shit. Yeah, that's like a. That's a <laughs> I haven't little, heard I that one. I like in, that. That's a good one. I used one. to work in like military contracting, like before I started uh, working in technology companies. 
And I, I'll, I'll, there, that was like a famous phrase, all these kind of old army guys that used to say that, like, oh, it takes a thousand attaboys to get rid of one off shit. But it's like an interesting framework. I like that. Um, is there a CEO or a leader that you most admire? There's so many in the Boston area, like Jason Robbins, like against all odds built DraftKings, like getting sued by 20 states, the federal government, like would not give up, tenacious. Uh, he, he's a great he's a great guy. I've had the chance to meet him a couple of times. And um, he, he is someone who's really inspirational. Just will yeah. not give up. Just will not stop. Yeah. So the the quality that you admire is like the grit, the perseverance. Absolutely. Yeah. Can't be done without that. So back to music. What's the first song that you learned on your guitar? Uh, Drive by Incubus. That was the first one. God, when I was, that must have been 15 years old. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It was my third instrument. And I was like, I think I can teach myself. I mean, it's not. Are you self-taught on all these instruments? (laughs) Well, I. I played classical piano as a kid and, you know, through lessons from a virtuoso concert pianist. She was great. She was really hard, hard teacher, um, which is a good benefit in life, right? You have a really hard teacher, teaches you about discipline and hard work. Um, saxophone, tenor saxophone. I've, I was a weird 12-year-old. I fell in love with 1960s straight ahead jazz and my Indian immigrant parents were like, what now? Who? What is this? And I'm like, <laughs> this is Miles Davis, guys. This this is Miles Davis. Were they playing traditional Indian music at home, or were you like opening oh, up the house to all sorts of genres? I was definitely opening it up. Um, my dad had grown up in England, so he was a big Beatles fan. So like the early Beatles, like Ticket to Ride, like Eight Days a Week, like that kind of two minute singy songy kind of pop Beatles. I grew up on that. I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I think I, I'm an extrovert. I, I like I like talking to folks. I like talking face to face. I I guess I have no choice now as a CEO of this company, but I um, yeah, I lean more towards extrovert. Yeah, and are you mountains or water? Oh, water for sure. Yeah, nice day at the beach or a pond or a lake. That's that's a good day. Yeah. So you mentioned your uh, parents were immigrants. So your first generation. What brought them from India, I guess, to Rhode Island? I was actually from Brazil. Uh, so we're Indian. My dad grew up in England and my mom grew up in India. And then they got married. And my dad's a PhD electrical engineer. He couldn't get a job in England in the 70s. It was hard. Uh, and so he moved with my mom to uh, Brazil. They were just randomly living outside of Sao Paulo. And he was teaching at a university there. Uh, they didn't really love the lifestyle. So I have an older sister. Uh, so the two of us were born in Brazil. Oh, wow. And, and then his, his, my dad's older sister moved to America and kind of settled in Rhode Island, like randomly. And my dad said, well, we have a chance. We're pretty close. Like maybe we can, I can get a job in Rhode Island and we can move there. And be close to family is a motivating reason. And so uh, when I was one year old in 1985, we moved to America. And I really don't have any memories of Brazil, even though leaving Brazil and going to Rhode Island was would be pretty stiff if I was any older. Have um, you been back to it Brazil? Was great. I went during the World Cup. Uh, during the when Brazil hosted the World Cup, we went down there. I got to see like the first house, all those old pictures that I had when I was a baby. 
the hospital I, I was born in, like just kind of completing that chapter of my life. I never got a chance to see it was a great kind of yeah. continuum, like on the journey of life, keep being able to see that stuff. Yeah. And does the, do, do your parents, did they ever learn Portuguese? Oh yeah. My dad taught uh, at that university fluently uh, in Portuguese and they can still speak it, which is cool. That's amazing. I love, I love listening to Portuguese. So I'm guessing they can probably understand a little bit of Spanish too. Like so useful. <clears throat> Definitely so useful. Way, way more useful uh, than you think, especially as you travel the world, which I, I've done a lot as a kid with them. Yeah. And they spoke, um, I know I read that you speak Hindi. Do they speak Hindi in the home? And I guess I've had a lot of, I have, as I mentioned, I have a lot of friends who are Indian and I've had a lot of guests on the podcast that are Indian and talking about moving here or living in neighborhoods where there's not necessarily a community. Um, how was that for you? And, and how much did your family try to assimilate or hold on to, to the culture? Yeah, it's, it's always interesting. You kind of got two cultures, right? You got the American culture, you're inside of it. It runs a different way than uh, you know, the my parents' upbringing, obviously. So that was some good natural kind of evolution that we did inside of our family. Um, thank, thankfully, my older sister kicked down most of the doors for me in advance, which was helpful. So thanks to her, hat tip there. Uh, the uh, language spoken at home, mostly English, to be honest. I There's a big joke in my family that I can like understand Hindi. Like if you speak it to me, I can understand it all day. But one day I, uh, my parents gave me a book, How to Learn Hindi in 30 Days, but I only made it through the first chapter, right, to actually be able to speak it. And that was talking about the future tense. So there's a big joke in the family that Michelle can speak Hindi, but can only talk about the future. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so funny. And you're, so your dad was an engineer. Your mom, does, was your mom working in the home or was she working outside of the home? Yeah, my uh, outside and inside, both. Um, my dad actually started a company when I was a kid. So my mom had worked there in, in accounting for a while too. Yeah. Um, yeah, but mostly mostly keeping an eye on me and my sister. When I hear about electrical engineering, like obviously I run a recruiting firm and we do a ton of, we you know, we, we place a lot of software development engineers. We get calls all the time, like, do you do electrical engineering? I get so overwhelmed by that concept. Like it covers so much. Like what did he actually do? Oh, um, telecommunication via lasers, undersea cables. You know, there's like cables that are like on the uh, bottom of the ocean that connect the continents, right? Like undersea fiber yeah. optic telecommunication. And you send like essentially internet communication through lasers, right? You pump the data through a laser, which bounces through a glass tube underneath the ocean and that the amplifiers and, and things like that and my dad's specialty fiber optics wow. is what it's called it yeah. seems like you've got a little bit of both of your parents in you like it's from a brain's perspective because it's not typical that you meet someone who's got such a deep knowledge of um, engineering and tinkering and kind of building and also such a strong um, operations background who also goes into this front-facing CEO role. Um, yeah, kind of, they, I, I, I would think that's more of a unicorn situation. Um, where, where do you, how do you identify of, as far as your yeah. kind of ninja skills? It's a love of solving problems. I and mean, since I was a kid, it, it's just, there's a problem, we'll try to solve it. And, and then a thirst and, and curiosity for knowledge, right? That's like so important. Like, 
how does the internet work? I, I don't know. Let's find out. Like, how, how do computers work? Like, how does the television work? How does the signal go into your house? Like, all, all that sort of stuff kind of captivated my youth. Uh, and and it was pretty easy for me to figure out what I wanted to do. Not necessarily because my dad was an electrical engineer, PhD, also and super smart, um, which I was not as a kid, super smart. But um, it was like a natural fit to puzzle solving, building things. I took to programming quite quickly. I understood it. I, I liked it. I, I liked, you know, working with breadboards and circuits and, and chips and it kind of made sense to me. I'm surprised to hear you say like, and I wasn't that smart as a kid. Is that like in the way that traditionally, like you weren't a good student? Yeah, I think, I think that maybe that kind of cultural uh, assimilation was harder for me as I was trying to figure out, you know, who I wanted to become when I was older. And, you know, my sister was like a super brainiac, like academic, like all A's, like, I don't know, kind of finding my way in the world and what I wanted to be. So tell me about a typical week. Did you just get into books or did you like physically tinker to try to figure things out? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, learning programming at school and, and through other folks that, you know, my dad knew or, or whoever. Um, I did some uh, coding camps at MIT actually over the summers wow. where I was just going, I don't know, hang out for a month and learn how to program. That was actually kind of fun um, and, and definitely formative. Playing lots of music, right? Like as a kid, probably why I wasn't that great academically, like, you know, unfocused on purely academics, but trying to get more life experience out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Playing, playing sports, playing a lot of music. Um, yeah. And then obviously concerts and, and doing all that stuff. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing you were probably good enough at school because you got into Northeastern, an awesome school. How did you decide on, <laughs> yeah. how did you decide on, on going there? Oh, it was so easy. My older sister went there to study pharmacy and I visited her a million times and I was like, this is it. And yeah. I think, you know, living in Boston, super, super attractive, right? I mean, yeah. the, the co-op program is, is pretty much the best I think in the nation. And, and that, and it still was that like in 02 and 03 when I was going to school there and just felt like you'd get set up for a life uh, where you actually have some working experience, figure out what you want to do. Yeah. Right. Oh, How does that schools. whole process work? Cause I know that you did that you built electronics for the military during college and do they just come and, and they put you through cycles of different industries or do they recruit or how does that rotation work? Six months on, six months off. So um, after your freshman year, you'll either come back to school for a year or you'll come back to school for six months and then you'll be out interviewing. You know, like going out and interviewing and trying to get this in internship, right? Trying to get this six-month co-op. And Northeastern just does such a great job having all the kind of companies, both remotely and other places. You could work at Microsoft if you wanted to, or Apple, or or wherever. Um, yeah, and you go and you do the whole thing. You show up in the suit and you have your resume, and they they give you prep on how to answer these interview questions and talk about yourself in a professional way. And and then you go and you get your own letter, and and you know it's great. You make some real money during your internship, which is great. I feel like that should be the model for all schools. It's just brilliant. And you get an extra year in undergrad. You go for five years, right? Because you've been working in between. And so yeah. you get an extra year in college. Yeah. 
And what did it teach you as far as getting clarity around what you wanted to pursue after college? Because I know that your first job out of school was as a software development engineer, right? Yeah, yeah. As like a, as like now what I know to be like product engineering, right? Like system engineering, thinking about how things work, modeling its behavior, thinking about components and things like that. Less about like, I'm going to go design an antenna or like an amplifier, but more like, how is this all going to work together? Which was what I really loved. So yeah, I mean, got a chance to work at Raytheon in undergrad and it was pretty awesome. And I was like, this is pretty cool. Like you can learn a lot about managing a schedule, managing a budget, all the skills that I need now, right? Just being an entrepreneur, being a being an operator of a, a large company now. So much yeah. of that I learned through my first job at undergrad, right? Mm-hmm. And working at BAU Systems, like, how do you break down a really hard problem? We have to build this thing that's going to fly on a fighter jet. Like, how are you going to, like, how are you going to do it, right? Like, think about customer requirements and what they desire it to do and how much is it going to weigh and, and how much power it's going to take. Just building solutions in constrained environments, which is, like, really valuable. I mean, I loved it. It was great. But kind of got old, too which is, again, back to my thirst for knowledge and, and curiosity about other things. I, I just kind of got burnt out of working in that industry. It goes in cycles with whoever's in, you know, presidential office and, and you know, how budgets work. And that was kind of the reason why I wanted to leave when I did. But uh, it was a great run. I learned a lot of skills, a lot of amazing skills there. Yeah. And I know you went back and pursued an advanced degree and, um was that something that you felt was necessary or was that just kind of like, oh, this is just what you do? And if so, what advice are you giving? I know you do a lot of mentoring. What advice do you give younger folks around pursuing an advanced degree? Yeah, I had gotten into a pretty elite like leadership program for engineers and it was like a three-year program to pay for my master's degree. And it, it felt like a good move for me at that time, you know, being, what is it, whatever I was, 20 years old, 21 years old, graduate undergrad and think about like, you know, how do I want to continue to refine my thinking and refine my knowledge and continue to take on more kind of challenges for my own brain about, about how things work and continue to push myself. It felt like a great move. You know, our master's degrees, are you really a master of something after kind of 10 classes? Maybe, maybe not, but you know, more challenging topics to think through and stuff to learn is, is great. I had a great time. Um, what I, what I paid for it out of pocket in this world, maybe not, but I had the chance to get it paid for. And it seemed like a great, a great opportunity for me and certainly had a, had a productive master's degree experience. And, and again, learn more skills at the end of the day learn more yeah. things to think through and, and you just learn more about the world, which is awesome. For sure. And, um, you know, when we get into link squares, I'm going to ask you some questions around interviewing and kind of vetting and all of that. But I am curious just broadly, cause you've been in a hiring, uh, position for a while now in your career. Is that something that you personally look for, like specifically pedigree, or is it more kind of DNA around curiosity and thinking and kind of teachability? Um, and kind of just broad overall, um, just the person more than kind of their pedigree. Yeah, it's, I mean, pedigree is an interesting term. I mean, we're looking for skills, right? Like we need a senior software engineer to crank senior level software engineering code out, right? Um, 
whether or not you know a specific web application framework, probably less important. Anyone can learn anything, right? If you don't know JavaScript and you know how to code in Rails, I'm sure you, or Ruby, you, I'm sure you can figure it out. So kind of depends on the role, right? But in the, in, it's still kind of true is like, we have four company values that we really kind of pride ourselves on and that's who we are, right? Which is, you know, being team first, doing what you say, uh, thinking about being all in all the time, right? Like that's kind of what you're encompassing is like, we want people who are like all in on doing anything that it takes, right? Um, and then being customer driven, which is like really important because we only exist because people like the software that we build, they use it every day, right? And so yeah. we're, we're, we're kind of looking at both, right? And then the fit and the fit in who you are, right? The, would you have a beer with this person test? It's still a great test. It's always the kind of test like- Yeah, like do I want to be next to you and hang out with you? because Yeah, are you stranded at an airport? You're trying to come back from Chicago. You have to spend the night. You're going to be stuck with this person. Like, do you want to be stuck with them? Are there someone you want to be stuck with, right? Um, that that kind of works really well. Now, I don't do a lot of hiring anymore. I guess my job is complete. I hired a great uh, executive team. But it's still true that when we hire, you know, frontline employees, I mean, I think we hired over 200 employees last year. Yeah. And that's, it's, that's it's great when there's a great fit on both, right? Like, you're also, you're great at the skill that we're hiring you to do. Yeah. Um, which is great. That's awesome. That's their credit, their background, their resume. And then it's, you know, do you embrace what we are and who we are? And, and will you will you get on board with who we are as people? Right? Yeah. So prior to starting the company, I mean, you had over 10 years working in like various SaaS companies and different technology companies. Which of these companies, I guess, uh, laid the groundwork for the type of culture that you wanted to emulate? Or did you kind of take little pieces from all of them? And if so... At what stage in building Link Squares did you kind of set those values and that that mission statement, um, or was yeah. it super organic? Yeah, the the single place that had the most influence on me was the first SaaS, you know, B two B software company I worked at, which was Backupify, and where the idea for Link Squares actually came from, right? And so when I think about how we, they used to do all hands and they used to do co company communication and how they used to do like kickoff and rewarding people. And I mean, we've, we've iterated it, you know, now in, in, you know, 10 years later from working there, we've iterated on it, but there's so many people that work for me that worked there too. So they kind of saw it there. They saw it, what we're trying to do here. We took a lot of great stuff from what Rob, the Rob May, the founder of, back up a five, what, what he did in terms of being a CEO, right? And probably even took it further, right? Took it further, made it even better, right? Um, I think that's what's wonderful about hiring people from all different backgrounds, all different companies, big companies, small companies, startup, public, publicly traded, whatever. You learn a lot about what that special sauce is. There's some stuff you cannot take from other companies like our values, right? And the value is kind of solidified, I'd say, closer to where we are today in time rather than at the beginning. Uh, we we, we kind of had an unspoken, you know, who are we as people, right? There was a moment maybe three years ago where we actually wrote them down. And like a couple of years ago when we actually wrote them down and we're like, this is it, this is who we are, right? Um, probably as we approached, you know, probably 70, 80 employees, 
like having a well-defined mission statement, having like having well-defined values, living on those. Before that, we were doing those things anyways, and it was really easy to create the values of the company because that's who we are, and yeah. that's it, it. That's who we are. Kind of happened organically, right? Which right. is like the best way to do it. So let's dig into it. So tell me about how you came up with the name. And my favorite part is learning from people who are founders, kind of the origin story. of. Yeah, I did work with my co-founder. We worked at Backupify together uh, and my CMO and my CTO and my CRO and a whole bunch of others now that we've uh, grown the company to be almost 400 employees now. So um, yeah, I was, I was with my co-founder. The company we were working at, Backupify, was getting acquired by another company, Datto, much bigger. Datto came in and said, this fall, we're going to buy this company, and we have lots of questions about how it works. So we're asking people answers to questions. And I said, great, well, I'm in an operations role. I know a lot, of, a lot about what goes on here, and I'm happy to help. So as they continue to explore what was interesting to them inside the business, we were backing up Google, like Google Gmail, like corporate Gmail, Google Drive to AWS. That was the whole business, making a secure second copy. And they were a backup, they are a backup company too. And so they said, well, it doesn't make sense for us to pay your Amazon bill. We have a huge data center out west somewhere. And we have plenty of space. So we just want to move all your customers' data off of AWS and onto our data center which is like a cost cutting thing. We're paying Amazon a boatload of money. And they said, which customer's contract says we can move their data without their permission? Can you tell us? And we want to start moving their data. And we said, okay, great. Well, I had raised my hand on a hundred odd projects, which is a life lesson. You could know, be a indispensable worker if you just keep raising your hand and will not take no for an answer. That's the tinkerer in me. That's the uh, puzzle solver. Um, from when I was a kid. And I said, yeah, I'm happy to take a look. It's kind of impossible to do, right? Third-party paper, red-lined contracts. We didn't track any data. That's where the idea of Link Squares actually came from, like seeing, like, why is this so hard? And why don't we not know all these answers? And how do people get all these answers? Like, we have 10,000 customer agreements. How do we know what we agreed to in every single one? That was like a, a light bulb moment for then us to go and do lots of learning around. I mean, not lots of building of software and selling it, lots of learning to validate that we had the right problem, right? And yeah. uh, the name Link Square is like lawyers talk about agreeing to things in the four corners of the paper, right? Like it's a square, right? It's actually a rectangle, but it's a square. Um, we had a search technology. You could search across your contracts. You're linking the squares of paper together. Uh, and that was good enough for us. That was good enough for us. I have to say, um, I hadn't heard of the company before learning about you. And and we don't we just have a small company. I mean, it's it's nothing compared to some of your clients. And it's brilliant. I mean, the business idea is so needed. It's such it's one of those like, ah, oh, of course, you know, like absolutely. It's a no-brainer because it's so true. And and honestly, I've been doing this business for almost 30 years and one of the obstacles for me in starting a company was my fear and overwhelmed feeling of like legal contracts because it's intimidating. Yeah, sure. It can be intimidating. I'm like, well, what if I miss that line? And what if I'm, you know, it's my company and I'm bootstrapped it and it's, and it's my capital. And what if I get sued and you just don't know what you're missing or 
you know, a contract goes, uh, it's got a, an expiration date that you're not aware of. And then suddenly, you know, five candidates get taken off of our payroll, all these things that can go wrong. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. It's so good. Do you have competitors? It's, a, it's actually quite an old market. It's 25 years old. And so there's kind of different generations of competitors, like generation one, generation two, but there's a lot of people who see a big opportunity in this, right? Um, hundreds and hundreds of companies, which makes the LinkedIn story even more kind of unusual and, and improbable to kind of gain the amount of success that we did because we really came into an existing market selling them a dream of using artificial intelligence in a way they had never, you know, seen before, which was really mm -hmm. cool. Can you, I just want to make sure that we've, we've told the listeners exactly what Link Squares does. Sometimes I sure. miss that because yeah. I, of course, did the research and it's yeah. your company. So, you know, um, A, <laughs> tell us what Link Squares does and then B, tell us what you mean by, by AI. Um, I always have to assume that this is a child listening um, and, and how sure. AI works to pull that data. Yeah, yeah, sure. So LinkSquares is uh, software for in-house legal teams specific around contract management. So full lifecycle contract management software, everything from creation to versioning, approvals, signature, storage of executed agreements. And the real special thing is we have these little robots or artificial intelligence that do a lot of work for you on your behalf, right? And so the first thing they do is they actually read the entire contract and extract 200 pieces of data about what you agreed to in that contract. Like the effective date, who are the parties listed? Does it have certain termination rights, limitation of liability, warranty, all that stuff. We extract it all. Getting access to that information is really hard. The only real way to do it is to pay a human being to do it one at a time manually. So we do that through, through artificial intelligence, right? these little robots, like a little robot paralegal working alongside you, never takes a day off. And the real science is it reads the contract and creates uh, data out of what has been written in sentences. That's it. That's a special sauce. So like in my case, I'm just going to give you a random example. Our fee agreements have the standard agreements of like the percentage that we charge and the payment terms. And like, we're based in Washington, Washington law is kind of what, but yeah, it, all of that. In Washington law, but sure. sometimes, but sometimes it will come, let's pretend I'm doing business with Amazon. Amazon has little things in there that say like a candidate is their candidate if it's known to them first. And it's like the tiny print will say something like known to them will be like if, if they reached out to someone on LinkedIn once, you know, like they have these weird terms. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. giving you weird examples, which I probably shouldn't say on the podcast, but like there's lots of little details that can come from someone else's contract. It's those contracts, of course, that make me nervous, not, not my own. Um, how does it work when it's a different contract? Because it can't be as templated. It can't just, it's, it's yeah. all those little details. Yeah. How does the robot find yeah. those things? We we trained it on the, the sentences, right? Regardless of what the, the contract is and where it came from, right? Like the sentence that contains the, contains the state of governing law, right? Like this contract is bounded by Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts laws, right? <clears throat> we hand annotated those, right? Mm. Like we, a subject matter expert, like a juris doctorate, a, a formally trained lawyer is like, 
this is the state of governing law. This is the effective date, right? And over time, the algorithm sees hundreds of thousands of different training sets. It starts off completely unintelligent, but over seeing these training sets over a long period of time, it becomes so smart that it gets it right, you know, basically every time. Wow. And that's how it works, right? And this technology can be yeah. applied to literally any industry, literally any document, right? We've just focused on kind of commercial contract terms, which people are really struggling to get. Yeah, business model is subscription-based, right? Feature-dependent, volume of contracts we're processing, number of users that you have to get access to the software, kind of traditional SaaS model. Mm -hmm. And um, you are not size uh, limited, like any size company can use the any software. Any size, yeah, we've got publicly traded companies that are in 40 different countries like using the software. Yeah, I read that, like, it's insane. And you yeah, raised a ridiculous, ridiculous amounts of money raised and crazy valuations. <laughs> like how much money have you raised so far? And I guess, where are you relative to where you're trying to go as far as growth? $162 million raised five rounds of venture capital. 140 million in nine months away from each other. So we did 40 and then we did a hundred million round uh, last year uh, in April. Um, we are like right on, like right on our growth projections, obviously with the macro economy being what it is, uh, buying software is just under more scrutiny, but we're long for the journey. Uh, there's a huge addressable market available to us. It's every company in the world's got Yeah, I was going right? to say your total addressable market is, uh, Infinite. everyone <laughs> it's like every company <laughs> that's crazy that is yeah, continue continue to grow double the revenue of the company yeah interesting so i did watch your video you talked about the four p's of product and you talked about people people's obviously my world that i live in so talking about the people um you know and you talked about having a lot of the people that you've worked with prior which makes you obviously um very fundable because a lot of venture Venture capitalists love that, um, that you're a proven team, that you know what you're getting. Tell me about some of those first hires that you made um, and how you think about hiring in those early days. Yeah, first executive hire was our CTO. Uh, I was running the build of the software through a, like with an offshore team. And we needed to bring that in-house. And that was the, kind of the right moment when we did our kind of first first venture deal and raise some capital to kind of continue to support it. So CTO, right? We're a software company. You need a great software architect. Eric and I worked together at Backupify. He was the best engineer I ever worked with, the smartest, easiest going, can do everything full stack, you know, very, very senior, been doing it for 25 years, right? Since he was a kid, basically. He was really easy hire for me. I knew him. I knew he didn't want to continue on the company he was working at. That was a great pickup, right? Next big executive pickup a year late. Well, then, um, so that year I hired the person who was just a, a product manager who then ended up becoming, you know, the lead of our entire product organization. And um, he joined the same time as our CTO, so Andrew. So Andrew runs products. Eric is the engineer. Is me. I'm like a product guy too. So that's the three of us for a long time, right? And then 
the next exec hire that I made a year later when the revenue was actually going pretty pretty well, right? My co-founder and I are not the best salesmen uh, by far, but we were still able to do, you know, five customers in the first year, then 25 more, and then kind of on the track to doing like 40 more in that year. And then I recruited someone I worked with. Uh, that was a great kind of fit for our selling price, right? I, I think as a founder, you're trying to find someone to lead your revenue team. They need mm -hmm. to have, you know, selling price fit, like, you know, sales right. leader selling stage price for fit, the stage. Right? Yeah. 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 And also at the price point, right? Like if someone was specializing in selling $11 million deals that take three years to close, totally. but you really need them to close $30,000 deals in 30 days, that's like a mismatch of the skills. Totally. And not even it's, it's the skills, but it's also the DNA of the kind of person who wants the quick the quicker hit, because I found that people yeah. who, who operate like that, like I personally could never do a, a three-year sales cycle. I don't, I don't have that yeah. in me. Like, that's just not my personality. Yeah. I need faster results. Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah, we did too, right? Because our, our, our thesis originally was to find companies that looked like the company we used to work at, right? Fast-growing tech companies. That's how we got started. We obviously diversified our targeting strategy over the years. But um, yeah, so I had a good fit for someone who sold in that kind of middle market, small enterprise price point and had great track record for crushing it and was already in a leadership role. And that was my CRO, Steve. So, so now I have Eric, I have CTO, I have Andrew running products, me and my co-founder doing everything. My, yeah. my co-founder Chris has done every role in the company. I've done every job in the company. Yeah. Literally and what, what year did you start? What year did you start the company? 2015. And so are all those people still there? They're all still there. They're also there. That's so looking on your website, I was like, wait, I think those are all the same people that are still there. So and you say you're not yeah. good at sales, I would argue totally the opposite because closing people to get them to join your company, especially in a market where they have these large, you know. It's like the David versus Goliath thing. Like, you know, how sure. do you get them to join a startup? That's a, it's the question I yeah. get asked all day, every day. And in those early days, it's a startup, right? And you're selling yeah. yourself, you're selling your vision, um, especially yeah. in a market that you're not the first mover in. Um, yeah. So you are good at sales. I mean, we were selling. You're we selling were sell a I was selling two things. I was selling two things. This is your chance to to be the the top of the pile in that department and a chance to give you that shot, right? Some of them had already been doing it, but have that shot again, or do it for the first time. And then the proof is in the sales. Like people are buying the software and we're not really great at selling it, but people are buying it. There's strong product market fit here. And if you come in, you'll help make this even better. And I'll, I can stop doing the sales work. You can do the sales work. Mm -hmm. And my first employee is still with us. My second employee is still with us. Like it's wild. Like it's, it's pretty rare. I think they've carved out a spot for themselves and their subject matter experts in what we do now. Right. Which yeah. is just amazing. Well, and you're getting a lot of outside recognition and validation that not only from a revenue and growth standpoint, but just, um, you know, great place to work and philanthropic and just doing all those things that are for many leaders kind of nice to haves. And I, I believe that we, when you start with the people and you treat people well, um, 
and people are getting smart, right? They're looking on Glassdoor, they're looking at LinkedIn to see the tenure of the people. Yeah. It makes it a lot more attractive yeah. when when people are and looking at workplaces. And I'll, I'll tell you, my job was to only hire the person that works for me and make sure that that person is so impressive that they can go and recruit the people that are gonna work for them. Yeah. Right? And if you do it right, we have got 70 account executives, maybe 60 account executives that work in the company every single day. And if I were to survey them, they, they all want the same kind of career arc as my CRO, right? So this was a great learning lesson that I had, which is I worked with all these experts at all these companies, like the best marketers, the best product people, the best finance people. And at the end of the day, people want to work with other people who are experts to teach them how to become an expert, right? It's like a apprentice and a expert type model, right? Like if you study under this person and work for them, you will obviously, because you're orbiting around them every single day, learn more than anyone trying to or read a bunch of blog posts on how to spell software over the phone, right? Like you're going to get that super outsized return on your career path, working for someone who works for me, who's a real expert. And that model has been the most powerful hiring model there is, especially when you're trying to recruit really hard to recruit talent, especially in engineering. Like one day, maybe you could be like Eric, my CTO, who just basically knows everything about everything. But how did he do it? He just learned from other people who knew everything about everything. And then he learned it over a longer period of time. And if you work for and around Eric, there's a pretty good chance if you're not an idiot, you'll do the same. You'll get the skills. Eric will teach you whatever he needs to teach you about DevOps yeah. and infrastructure and JavaScript and background workers and whatever, right? And that model has been the single most powerful thing there is. Yeah, well, it, sounds, it sounds like a seriously incredible company, and I'm so glad I um, know more about the company now. Um, where are you as far as hiring? And if, if you're hiring right now, what types of positions in case somebody's listening and wants to work there and or if somebody's listening and wants to be a customer, how can they find you or apply? Or well, visit us at linkscores.com. Yeah, visit us at linkscores.com. That's easy. Check us out on LinkedIn. We're really kind of hiring across the board, right? And in kind of every role in the company, revenue works out of Boston. We were kind of, we're kind of not the norm where uh, we don't do remote for revenue. They go to the office every day. So if you're in the Boston area, want to work in a revenue role, any revenue role, come check us out. We're, we're a pretty fun bunch, downtown Boston. Downtown and then Boston, um, yeah. technolo technology roles are, are in, you know, all over America. Yeah, everybody's kind of working everywhere. That's smart because you, if you're going to try to compete, especially because during COVID, everything kind of got shifted. Like San Francisco and New York are recruiting out of Seattle. Seattle's recruiting out of Denver. I mean, everything's moving everywhere. We've started recruiting uh, for our clients all over the country. So that's super smart to like level the playing field. Um, tell me more about you personally. Like you're balancing all this. You're still pursuing all of your interests, I'm guessing. What do you like to do for fun when you're you're busy? You've got a four year old, a nine month old. Um, how do you balance? Yeah, two it beautiful all? little two beautiful little girls uh, taking care of them. Uh, when they go to bed, so we sleep trained our, our nine month old when she was eight month old, which was a huge huge win last month and the months before. So uh, I like to play guitar like twenty thirty minutes every day. I think it, 
I play in the basement now, which is great. So I have really no restriction. My wife just says we need one floor in between you and the kids when you play guitar. So luckily I can do that in the basement. Um, playing guitar is so important to me because when you're playing guitar, that's the only thing I can think about. I can't think about the kids. I can't think about the company. I can't think about a call I have to do. I have to lock in and play. Um, I like playing blues, like, like improvisational based blues, which is high, you know, it's high brain load. You're in the moment. It's a, it's a great release. Um, I, I love wine. Uh, I'm a big wine collector. So there's always a, there's always something to read about there in terms of wine. And I love going to Napa and checking it out. I'm into it. So uh, I collect also a little, little small collection at home. So uh, I do that. Uh, watch watch some sports when I can. Right, uh, sports kind of a back burner thing now, but I love going. I love going to a game. So easy to go see the Celtics or the Bruins. Uh, they're right downtown in Boston. Patriots season still going on. Knock on wood. Uh, we can win on Sunday. Uh, get into the playoffs, and and then you know, spend spend time. I, th- I think when you have kids and you're you're with a partner, you're. You, you get kind of wrapped up in all the kids stuff because there's so much of your life every single day. Just make time to watch, watch a movie with my wife, chat, hang out. You know, we got married yeah. for a reason because we like each other, you know, don't forget that. Uh, we like playing board games, just kind of device free, not on my phone, not on the TV. Like we like to play, play board games, play card games, like at, you know, just the two of us. It's fun. Yeah, that is fun. And what do you do to set yourself up for a good week? Is there like a Sunday ritual or Monday morning um, way to stay organized? Yeah, I, I'm a meticulous note taker. So I've been using Notion for the last God, three or four years. You know, go back, review things I have to do, what the priorities are. We run the company on EOS, Entrepreneur Operating System. So we installed that like a year and a half ago. So that kind of keeps us like really grounded and focused. My management team meeting is Tuesday, not Monday, because you lose a lot of Mondays in the year. It's it's significant, especially when you're moving like the pace we are. So um, we use EOS. It keeps everything kind of aligned, kind of cuts out all the distraction and the noise. Like what's really critical that we have to solve? What are the issues inside the company? What tasks do we have that we're trying to accomplish? And so, um, I really don't have a ritual. I'm ritual free. Sundays, I like watching football and having a, and cooking a great dinner. Uh, I also like cooking. So uh, that's another one of my things that I like doing. So Sundays, have a great dinner, relax with the wife, get ready. Uh, Monday, Monday, I dive into data. Like how, how, do, how are we doing? What's the update? I'm on the phone a lot, right? Call my CFO, call my chief legal officer. Call my CRO. Even I mean, we don't even have one on one. We're on the phone with each other all the time. Yeah. It's like texting each other on the weekends, like checking in. So much of the journey we do as a family, right? Like my exec team is like we're like a big family, right? We fight like brothers and sisters sometimes, right? But we're like a family. We we see each other socially. Are are you? We all have kind of kids that are the same age. Get the kids together when the weather is great. Have a beer. Have a glass of wine. They'll watch a game together. We're doing that stuff all the time, right? Texting yeah. with each other, just kind of being in the trench together. It's a 52 weeks, a long journey. Yeah. I mean, it's a long journey, 52 weeks. You ride highs and lows. And obviously with the macro economy, the way it is, it's it's a lot more stressful than it has been um, just to kind of think through like all the scenarios. But 
just staying in touch with each other, right? Talking about fears and anxieties and like, hey, is this part of the business okay? Like, I saw this metric is a little off. Like, what's going on there? Let's double click into it. I mean, a lot of it's just data, right? Like, yeah. as you learn how to operate this company, my job is mostly looking at data, thinking about the future, right? It's, it's so nice I mean, that you guys have each other that there's oftentimes that CEOs will say that it, you know, can be a little bit lonely at the top. And it's great that you've been so vulnerable and transparent with your leadership team and that you've got such a nice foundation of friendship and family there. My ultimate question for you is, um, is what fuels you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Big picture wise. For my kids. Yeah. For my kids, for my wife, like continue to give them the best life I can. Right. And for, all the kids and all the spouses and partners of everyone that works for us, right? There's a large responsibility we have to be an employer, right? I, I, I feel that weight heavy every day, right? We, we have 400 employees. We have 50 kids on our health insurance. Like we have a lot of people depending on us. So that gets me out of bed, gets me through hard times, uh, gives me extra encouragement when things go really great as planned. Um, it fuels me to be able to create opportunities for people that don't have them too, right? Like, like we continue on this mission. We made 400 jobs in America. That's great. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.